from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Good morning to everyone around the world listening in to the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. It's great to have you here from as far away as Belvedere, Texas, to Dunkirk, uh, to what else have we got here today? We've got a bunch of people in from Butte, Montana for this show, uh, Lightning Round. Uh, and it's great to have you all here. I have KC in the booth monitoring all things quiet as ever. And I have Rob sitting next to me. Yo, yo. Rob, how many times have you been to Butte, Montana? I've been to Montana. I don't think I was in Butte. I've never been to Butte. I've been to Montana and I love the show Yellowstone and all of the spinoffs, prequels, but I don't think I've ever been to Butte. Yet today, all these people in from Butte and of course, everywhere else around the world, it's uh it's great. Butte's, uh, Montana's a beautiful state. I'm sure they would welcome you when you go back. I hope they would. I, I would hope, hope so. I will shower and make sure I smell nice, and okay. so everyone's nice to me. So I want to get started here, and we are doing an episode of the lightning round, or excuse me, a lightning round episode of the show, and that means I'm taking people's questions. I am live right now on TikTok and on Facebook, Facebook down here, TikTok up there, and I'm taking your questions. And the first one that someone has given me, and I guess this needs to be addressed, and that is, Sven, how do you feel about the ban on TikTok? Well, it hasn't happened yet. There seems to be a lot of heat in Congress. I got to be honest, I am not really following it. Uh, for those of you around the world who aren't familiar with it, uh, the United States government is putting pressure on TikTok to sell to a non-Chinese uh, entity, whatever. And uh, the lawmakers, many of the lawmakers in the U.S. are saying, hey, 150 people in the U.S. use TikTok a day, whatever. 150 million, forgive me, <laughs> that little critical piece on the end, million. But hey, let's shut it down anyway. I'm, I would love to see TikTok stay in the air, but uh, I'm not a big thinker in terms of politics, so it's really not my decision, so I really don't worry about it. And it's like anything in life. You know, things happen that we don't want to happen or that we don't fully understand or whatever, and you adjust and move on. I'll grieve it because TikTok has been very good uh, to, you know, help in helping me get things out there and try to help more people around the world. Uh, but it's like anything else, man, when shit happens that you didn't plan on, or maybe don't want, what do you do? You grieve it, you get all the feelings out and then you move forward. And very often the things that we thought we didn't want to happen end up bearing new fruit that there's no way we could have seen happening. Um, so those are my feelings. And I only speak for myself and I speak for no one else. And someone just writes right now, evil Knievel is from Butte, Montana. Who knew? All right, so Butte seems to be the theme today. What other questions do we have? My dad has a parole hearing next month. How do I process this if he gets out of prison? Okay, Bernd Crystal, I'm gonna operate from the perspective of that you are not physically in danger, that, that your father is as in a danger to you, that the crimes he committed were not against you. If you are in physical danger, then you have to do everything in your power to protect your physical well-being and that of those you love, whether it means whatever that might mean. Talk to lawyers uh, regarding that. That's out of my field of uh, ability to help. However, if you are not physical threat, what I hear you saying is, how do I deal with him? Or how do I process this if it gets if he gets out of prison? That implies the notion that you're using the word process it uh, implies that you have a lot of strong feelings regarding it. And what's also interesting is that 
he's likely been in for, well, he has been in for X amount of time. And if he gets out, then I would process my feelings, which says you haven't really been doing it up till now. In other words, you haven't dealt with your feelings and I'm only going to deal with my feelings if dad gets out of prison. Otherwise, I don't want to deal with all the feelings regarding dad. Otherwise, you would have been doing it already. So that leads me to ask the question, what really is the biggest feeling or feelings or what are the things you don't want to think about? What are the feelings you haven't want to process? And for those of us who don't have a father in jail or in prison, we all have these experiences. We just taped some other episodes of the Badass Counseling Show where I was counseling different clients. And we taped and they'll go up on, on the show on Thursdays as the counseling ones and these lightning rounds go up on the Badass Counseling Show podcast on Sundays. And one of the uh, women on the show, a 36-year-old woman, very intelligent, loving, kind woman, she was talking about how really she started reading my book and then she had to stop because it was bringing up truths from her past, from her childhood that she didn't want to look at. She'd come to 36 and she had had these problematic relationships and she was beyond problematic. She was abused physically and emotionally in one marriage and then, you know, and just crap because she was conditioned to believe this was all she was worth, but she didn't want to look at her childhood. She wanted to live in this belief. No, I had this idyllic childhood. And as we talked about it more and more, it's like, no, you didn't. Sure, you had a nice house and sure you had clothes on your back and you played with your neighborhood friends, but... Your parents didn't meet your emotional needs. They basically neglected you, but she hasn't wanted to look at all that and how she walked on eggshells and so on and so forth. There's so many, she didn't want to do that because she didn't want to hurt her mother's feelings. I said, you don't even have to tell your mother. She says, I know it's too uncomfortable to think about. Of course it is. Because it means admitting I didn't have this idyllic childhood that I have always led myself to believe. There are truths in life we often don't want to look at because they're too ugly. And the implications of realizing you know, gosh, I really am mad at my dad. Back to you here at the Burnt Crystal. My dad has a parole hearing next month. How do I process this if he gets out of prison? There are things about him getting out of prison. There are things about who he is, how he treated you, what he did do, what he didn't do that you haven't wanted to look at, that you've waited until he potentially gets out of prison to now process, which means you've been avoiding processing it up to now. That means there's some ugly stuff in there you don't want to confront. And so my question to you would be in your journaling, in your self-work or with your therapist, ask the question, what is the single biggest thing I've been avoiding looking at while my dad has been in prison? And I'm betting it's some feeling, something he did that caused you to feel something or something he didn't do. There's some powerful or some realization about who he is and he is your blood and gee, is it in me? But there is some powerful feeling you don't want to fucking look at. And that's where the healing is. You've heard, you guys have heard me say it a million times in the words of Joseph Campbell, my favorite author, the cave you most fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. It's always the shit we avoid the most that has the most healing power in our lives. All right, next question. What have you all got for me? Here we go. This is one coming off the followers on Facebook and because I've got two lives going right now. Co-parenting with a person, father, who has many narcissistic tendencies. We are early in the separation, second separation. I am focusing on empathic parenting. Can you suggest anything else? Well, yeah, I can suggest anything else. Empathic parenting, great. God bless you, go for it. Um, there's a great book that's out. It's called uh, Scream Free Parenting. It's by a wonderful author named uh, Runkle. Uh, great one, Scream Free Parenting. There are plenty of great parenting books out there, but the parenting books aren't the point. The, the, you want to transform your parenting at any age, whatever age your children are. The biggest thing you trans, you do to transform your parenting, what you're modeling for the children, the underlying messages you're sending them, what you're showing them and how you live. And those often say far more than what's coming out of your pie hole. 
You want to transform your parenting, transform your own past. Look at your own past and the messages you were taught about yourself and that you were taught about life because all of those messages are infecting every single decision you make as a parent. They're affecting every single decision. They're affecting how you live your life and the message that the child is getting. Next question. Any advice for the child of a narcissist who neglected them because they weren't what they wanted? Yeah. Uh, some significant uh, advice on that one. And that is you have what you have to go into is those things you guys have heard me talk about a million times. And it's those core messages you were taught about yourself. The notion that your parent was, wasn't a, a narcissist really isn't the point. The point is that you, ne you were neglected. See, that's the effect on the child, the neglect or the abuse or the hitting or the screaming or the walking on eggshells. It's like the effect, regardless of who the parent is or isn't, Focusing on, well, they were a narcissist, okay, fine. But the effect on the child is that the child is neglected because you go on to say they weren't wanted. So you got the underlying, if you were neglected, then you got one of the underlying messages you got is that you don't matter. You don't matter. If I neglect to uh, clean my garage, that in the priority of things in my life, a clean garage is not a priority. And I know that sounds like a trivial example, but the parallel, it lines up perfectly. It's the same thing. It's not neglect. And, and then you go on to confirm it by saying they, they did that. They neglect you because you weren't wanted. So two of the very powerful messages that you got growing up are that you don't matter. The real you doesn't matter. And you're not wanted. Now, if you press those messages into the wet cement of a child's soul, and then that child goes into teen years and goes into 20s and 30s, believing I don't matter and I'm not wanted then all it's gonna take is that first boyfriend or that first girlfriend or that first job where you are taught, where you get the message, oh, I like you. All it takes is that first boyfriend, let's say in junior high, pouring a little bit of love in your love cup and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I'm never gonna let go. I'm never gonna let go of this person. I'm never gonna let go. Because for the first time in your life, someone is making you feel wanted. So you will sell the motherfucking farm. You will give up your sexuality. You will give up your uh, worth. You will give up your sense of self-respect. You will give up anything for that person who pours a little bit of love into your fucking love cup. You'll give up anything. If you got the messages growing up that you're not wanted and that you don't matter, or and there are a couple of other really core messages, if you got those messages and then you meet someone who gives you a little bit of love, you'll do everything. And you'll let them treat you in the poorest of ways just to get another drop of love coming from that love cup. So you set up your child for failure by conveying those messages. And you may think you're not conveying those messages, but it's not just how you're treating the child. It's how the child is seeing you allow yourself to be treated. So you wanna heal your parenting? Fuck, go back and heal your own childhood and all the messages that got pressed into that wet cement of your soul and then hardened, calcified, concretized over time and are in fact now the virus running the operating system of your life. All right, next question. Uh, well, and here's the follow-up question to that exact the same thing. I think I'm afraid of having kids because of my upbringing might leak out onto them. Any advice? Yeah, oh, it will leak out onto them. It won't leak out. It'll permeate everything you fucking do and you won't even be aware of what you're doing. So like I told the last person, you gotta go back into your own childhood. And that's why I've written the book. There's a hole in my love cup. That's why I have this podcast as well, uh, The Badass Counseling Show, and why I have the do-it-yourself video course on my website. I have it so that you can heal your fucking childhood. And this is scary shit. We were taping, I think I told you, we were taping an episode of the show earlier today and there was a woman who got one chapter in and she stopped reading because she didn't want to confront the shit that the book forces you to confront. All right, next question. What do you got for me today, fine people? Here we go. And this is a great one. Wow. 
Powerful. How do I get over the anger stage of my 15-year-old daughter's sudden passing six months ago? First of all, I want to say I'm so sorry your 15-year-old daughter passed. I think I speak for every single person that listens to my show. I am so sorry. And that is a fate worse than death in so many respects. And our hearts go out to you. I mean that very sincerely on behalf of Rob, on behalf of Casey in the booth and all of our listeners. You lost a child and a 15-year-old. Oh, but you asked the question, how do I get over the anger stage? That implies you want to get over the anger stage. And that caused me to raise the question, why do you want to get over the anger stage? But more importantly, wanting to get over it, oh, I don't like feeling angry, I don't like feeling angry. Anger is an uncomfortable emotion for a whole lot of people. So wanting to get over it, on one hand, I understand, but it's almost like you're trying to rush or force the grieving process. And one of the stages of grieving, generally construed, is anger. Anger at God for taking my child. Anger at whoever might have killed her or the doctor that had neglect. I don't know what the cause of your child's death. Or maybe even anger at your daughter. And the guilt you feel over anger at your daughter. And I'm not saying you do feel that, but I have had parents who have had a child die and they feel some anger towards a child. And they feel bad for feeling that anger towards a child. So maybe there's some of that. Whatever it is, you feel anger and you want to be done with it. But the bottom line is, the anger isn't done with you. See, anger or sadness or blue, melancholy, frustrated, disappointed, elated, excited, exuberant, uh, lethargic, all of these are feelings. And feelings are like interlopers. Feelings pass through. Feelings are not identity. Feelings are not permanent residents unless we make them permanent residents. Unless we take that interloper passing through town and we say, come, live in my house and stay. Don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. Or unless we try to push that interloper, that feeling away, then it's like, rawr, and it stays. That which you resist persists. But with any feeling, if you allow it to come and to pass, it will pass. I did a video recently where I was talking about my son when he was about three years old, whatever, in the grocery cart. And I had taken him shopping. He started crying, got his finger pinched, all that. And I talk about how I allow him to allow his pain out. Because I know if I say, oh, big boys don't cry, or I'll give you something to cry about, or no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, just stop, it's okay. All I'm doing is I'm storing that pain inside the child. I'm not allowing it its natural expression. But feelings are interlopers. If I allow that pain to come and stay as long as it needs to stay, it'll just pass. And people say, well, Sven, you've never had a child die. That's true. But I have worked with literally in 30 years, probably close to 100 different people who have had a child die. And as we've worked together more and more, oftentimes they've stuffed it down for so long that they want the, the, the misery that they feel inside. They want it done. And a lot of times they don't want to let, or in other times they don't want to let go. But once we start flushing and commit to flushing out the feelings, eventually it starts to feel better. And it starts to feel better that the more they let out the pain, even in this worst case scenario, I've counseled people who were in war and uh, some dear friends of them died what they felt as a result of their own actions and the guilt they feel over that. Feelings, very powerful feelings, loss of life related feelings are often some of the most powerful. And you think, oh, it'll never pass, but the ones that allow it and allow it and flush it and flush it and allow it to flush more and more, eventually it does pass. Yes, even in the case of the death of a child. And so you're asking, how do you get over the anger stage of your 15-year-old daughter's sudden passing six months ago? You get over the anger stage by not trying to get over the anger stage. You just allow the feelings. 
You allow them and you sit down with your journal and your piece of paper, with your therapist, with your clergy person, whomever you're doing counseling with. And if you're not, this is one of those where you should be. Even if you're just doing it on your own and writing letters to your daughter, writing letters to anyone uh, whom you have strong feelings regarding this whole passing and flushing it out. You don't have to send those letters. The goal is to keep flushing and flushing and flushing and flushing all of that pain and the fears and the misery and the guilt and the anger and the anger and the anger and keep flushing till eventually it passes because until the pain is out of you, it's still in you. How do you get over the anger stage? By allowing the anger stage to stay as long as it needs to stay until it's done. And you be deliberate about giving it an avenue to leave, giving it an avenue to just keep flushing out. All right, next question. That was a great question, by the way, and very so open and honest and vulnerable, and I, re I respect that. All right, how do I process years of sibling bullying? I love them, but still have resentment, maybe? <laughs> Glenn Dolly, I guarantee you have resentment towards your sibling. And the mere fact that you say, you know, oh, I love them, but still maybe have resentment. No, if you've been bullied, I guarantee you have resentment, bitterness, anger, potentially rage and hatred towards that sibling. And that doesn't mean the hatred lasts for, oh, I don't wanna be a hater, I'm not a hater. No, you're only a hater if you don't get that out. I don't mean at the person, you can if you want, but I mean in your journaling, in your counseling, in your writing letters you don't send. If you don't get it out, you're carrying that anger and that hatred around, which means you're already a hater. It's only after you get it out and it's done, the flushing out of the hatred, un until it's, once it's done, then you're not a hater. But right now, if, if there is hate in there that you feel or anger, then you are an angry person. You're carrying it around because you don't want to touch it. You're quick to say how much you love them, but you're not quick to say how much you resent them. Isn't it interesting? Years of sibling bullying and you proclaim your love first, but you question your resentment. That says to me that you're not allowed your feelings. You don't allow your feelings. You've been conditioned to believe that your feelings don't matter right? And so you question, you think, oh, my resentment isn't justified, but I love them. And maybe you do love them. I, you know, whatever, fine, of course, whatever. But what that says to me more than anything is I've, and we just had a woman on the show and we dealt with this exact thing. When we've been bullied by a sibling, and very often, of course, it's most times it's going to be an older sibling because they're bigger. And that is when we've been bullied by a sibling, we so want the love. What we really want is the love. And even into 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we so want the love so that we so keep hoping they'll change so that, that now they'll finally love me. The very thing that you've been wanting since childhood can still drive decision-making in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s, right? And so how do you process years of sibling bullying? You have the courage to begin to be honest, and that is there is resentment in there, maybe even hatred and anger. And you have to begin to purge that, let it out, in all of your self-work that you're doing, because otherwise you're just lying. You're protecting, you're saying, oh, I love him, I love him, I love him, which implies to me you're still wanting to get something. I want a relationship with him. Yeah, well, let's just say you're 40 years old, Grand Dolly. I'm just, I don't know how old you are. Let's just say you're 40, and it's been years of sibling bullying. You have a 40-year pattern of behavior that you still keep hoping is gonna change. That's why you say, oh, I love him, I love him, because you're still wanting that relationship. You still keep hoping it'll change. You don't trust the pattern. The pattern is you have 40 years of them being a fucking asshole to you. And you keep hoping it's gonna change, and it ain't. How about admitting the truth that you do have resentment, potentially anger, hatred, rage, whatever it might be, and start flushing those out so that you can finally be free and admit the truth that really I never had a sibling to begin with. I just had somebody who's been an asshole to me my entire life. All right, next question is, how do you get over the abandonment by a father that has colored every romantic relationship? 
You get over it by going into it. Same as I was talking about earlier with the uh, other person asking about anger issues. You know, how do I get over the anger stage of a death, uh, the death of her daughter? You get over it by not trying to get over it. How do you get over the abandonment by a father that has called every uh, romantic relationship? You go into it, go into how you felt, you know, go into, and, and you should be pen and paper, fucking writing, 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 as long as it takes. Why? Because in the words of my mother, who today it is, if she were still alive, it would be her 95th birthday today. And as she always said to me, Sven, naming the beast is half the problem. It's not enough to feel the feelings. It's not enough to go to yoga class and feel the emotional release and to start crying in yoga class or to say, oh, I just work out to get my dopamine rush and that's how I make my problems go away. You don't make your problems fucking go away. That just gives you the physical release. It doesn't take care of the actual emotional problem. You have to give it words. You have to flush it out of you. That's why people go to counseling. Huh. That's why people go to their best friend, Steve, and say, hey, Steve, man, can you talk for a bit? Jeez, I'm just really having a hard time. My boss is a fucking asshole, or my kid is driving me nuts, right? Why do you go to Steve and talk? Oh, because it feels good to talk out my problems. And Steve's a good guy, so Steve says, fuck yeah, man, come on, brother, let's talk, right? It feels better. We relieve the burden by giving it words, and that's why you don't need a Steve. Not everybody is going to get a Steve in their life but you can have a pad of paper and a pen and it has the same effect. Well, I don't like to write stuff, Sven. It doesn't matter your fucking grammar, dude. It doesn't matter if you can fucking spell or not. Give it words, write poetry, write lyrics to a fucking song, but it needs words and to dig down and say what the truth is. God, my dad was really a fucking asshole to me. Or man, my sibling, in this case, we're talking about, uh, you know, or, or a abandonment by a father is colored. You have to go into what really happened. Write that story out. Write about, remember, to the degree that you are able, the feelings you felt, the abandonment to your father. And But that means also looking at the truth, that your dad failed as a parent. And it may also mean that I'm never going to get that relationship that I've always wanted. Well, why did I want the relationship? Because then we could, I would finally have a father. Then I could finally get the love I've been waiting for my whole life. And so the part that's affecting your relationships, you said, how do I get over the abandonment by a father that has colored every romantic relationship? By looking at what really happened. But not only that, and this is, you guys have heard me talk about this, and this is what my book is about versus so many of the other um, self-help books. But my book gets into the core beliefs. It's not just the pain that gets caused to you. It's the core beliefs that it teaches you about yourself, right? That's what I get into in my book. Until you identify what you were taught about yourself, things like, I don't matter, I'm no good, I'm not wanted, I'm not wantable. Until you identify what those are and where they came from, then you still have those core beliefs pressed into the now hardened cement of your soul. Those be beliefs have profound Effects, as you're saying, white CL, you say, how do I get over the abandonment by a father that has colored every, it's colored every romantic relationship? It's colored those relationships because you went into them. If your father abandoned you, he sent the message, you're not important. You don't matter. I don't care about you. Oh, I don't matter is the message a child gets. I don't matter. I'm unwantable. So then you're going to go into relationships in the future with that belief system, and you're going to let people treat you in ways that confirm the belief you don't matter, you're not wantable, you're no good. So you can see the effect of those very deep core messages. Now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos. So I finally caved in and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more and every time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. So I finally bought his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, to say I got an ass kicking is an understatement. Much needed. 
It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, we are back for continued success in the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. Thank you for everyone checking in, especially the fine humans of Butte, Montana. We got so many people in from Montana today. It's great. I fucking love that state. And Butte on top of it. That's awesome. I need to go to Butte. Just like when we had Nanowit. Remember when we had so many people from Nanowit? Uh, way up in northern Canada, Rob. That was far away, but you brought them right back in. I tell you, whether it be Nanowit or Butte or whatever else, great to have you here. I've got a question here from Katrine. Uh, how to get over the fact that I don't talk to my sister anymore. I cannot be around her. Don't know what her problem with me is. It is simply a bad situation when she appears. She lies and tries to humiliate me. So no contact, but it hurts. How do I deal with it? Well, Again, we're going back to the journaling thing, your counseling, whatever your mechanism is for getting your words out of you. You've got to identify what specifically hurts. And if you and I were sitting here, you know, having my uh, donut delight this morning, if we were sitting here having, you know, a, a beer this afternoon, whatever, I would want to ask you, what hurts the most? She lies, she tries to humiliate you, so you've got no contact, but something hurts. And I'm betting it's it's the love. You miss her. But my question is, what do you miss the most? I have many clients who struggle with going back to family members or not going back to family members. And part of it is, is that if they've been bullied or if they've been mistreated by family members over the years, they've maintained that relationship, sort of as I was talking about earlier, they've maintained relationships because they, or tried to, or even when they push them away, they still long for that person. Why? Because they would get those little, what people call nowadays, those little breadcrumbs. They get a little bit of love and they so keep hoping for more love that I think so little of myself that I'm gonna keep someone in my life. I'm gonna hold on to them, their caller, even though they're punching me in the face, metaphorically speaking, I'm gonna hold on to them because I just wanted a little bit of love. I, I hope, I hope, I hope that we can restore the relationship so that I can get the love that I've never gotten. You feel bad because in part, you're not getting whatever little smidgens of love your sister would give you, but also you're sort of aborting the notion that I'm ever gonna get my love needs met from my sister, that I'm ever going to have a loving relationship. And it perhaps also means I never had a relationship with her to begin with, that she was never really the sister, a loving sister. She was more like this person who I shared DNA with who was a jerk to me. And that's one of the hard realizations of life when we realize a sibling, a parent, a grandparent, whatever, has been, even though they bear the name parent or grandparent or brother, they haven't been that. And so part of the grieving process is, A, I'll never get that love from them and never have that relationship and get that love, but also that I never had that to begin with and that it was just a big lie and that I've perhaps been alone the whole time. Next question. My husband and I will be 60 this year. Congratulations. I am ready for a new life in warm weather, and he isn't. <laughs> Having grown up in Minnesota, as you can tell from my Minnesota North Stars cap, uh, I get the desire to get out of the cold. And here I am in the New York City area where it's nowhere near as cold as the brutal winters of Minnesota, but it's still winter. Um, I get it. I get it. And so you guys are at a bit of an impasse. And what I would really, I really would love to know Robin, is what his reason is for not wanting to go south. See, that's him just not wanting it. Yeah, but what's the underlying reason? 
And I'm going to assume in your case that the reason you want to get out is weather, but maybe there are other reasons. This is one of those that without knowing more of the story, it's hard to really uh, dissect it a bit. And I'm sort of scrolling here a bit to see if Robin gives me, here it is, here it is. Robin says the reason he doesn't uh, want to move south, and she does now that they're both turning 60, is he can't imagine not doing his job. All right. So what does that tell you guys? What's the first question you want to ask when somebody, when she gives that answer? Because the first question I want to ask is, is it possible that his entire identity or a huge portion of it is wrapped up in his work? Now, if you're 60, that means you grew up in the generation same as my siblings and me. I'm 55, going to be 56 this year. And in that generation, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even persisted today, but particularly back then, tragically, a woman was what she looked like and a man was what he did. Tragically, and I hope we're blowing up those fucking preconceived bullshit notions, but your husband no doubt drafts a massive amount of identity and self-worth and who I am by working his job. And if I go south, I won't be able to work my job. I don't know what his job is. It doesn't really matter. He thinks it's this job here. And so what we've got then, the impasse isn't just I want to go south and he wants to stay north. What the impasse is, is you needing something that feeds your soul and him believing that the only way his soul can be fed uh, is by working this job. And uh, we're at an impasse. And so my question would be, if you were my client or if we were having beers, what percentage of the decisions in your marriage have erred on the side of what he wanted and what percentage have erred on the side of what you wanted? If you were to break down, is it 65, 35? Pretty much 51, 49, 49, 51. Or is it like 85, 15? What percent have you gotten your needs met in this relationship or have the decisions been made based on what you want? I'm speculating here, but if it's always been what he wants, and once again, it's what he wants, it's what he wants, at what point do you stand up and say, no, we're fucking going, fuck you. Or even I'm going, you come down when you're ready. Because when you give away so much of your life, when you give away so much of your decision-making and so much of your power to another person, you do it out of love, you do it out of love, you eventually reach a point where I'm sick of fucking doing this shit. What about me? And the truth is there'll be no about you until you have the courage to stand up for you. And, and, I'm, and it may not be this case, I may be reading more in, but if it's mostly been about what he's wanted all this time, then you're predisposed to do what he wants and you're conditioned to think that way because of your own childhood. But at some point, you've got to ask the question, when do I matter? And not only that, when do I not only stand up for what, I, what, I, what matters to me, but when do I not back down and stand up? And uh, maybe it means at least going down there on your own to start. Uh, but you've, I just, you need to stand up for yourself. And there needs to be a meeting of the minds, hopefully a compromise. Anyway, next question. How do you feel like you matter? How do you do that? And that's a great question. So whether it's I matter or I am good or I have worth or I'm wantable or I'm lovable, how do you do that? You, you don't do it with uh, brute force. You don't do it with willpower. So many people think that they can make themselves feel better. I just need to believe in myself more or you know what? I just got to know that I can do it. They think they can willpower their way through life. And, and you can get pretty well down the road to your 30s, 40s, maybe even in your 50s doing that willpower thing. But if you've read any of my books, you know that at some point, you've heard me say that at some point in your life, what you're going to discover is that the soul is more powerful than the will. 
You can willpower and put on success and I'm going to get all the accoutrements of life and so on and so forth, but I'm still fucking miserable inside because I'm trying to willpower life. I'm not living from my source. I'm not living my authentic self. How do you feel like you matter? You don't do it by saying, I matter, I matter, I matter. I have my daily mantras. I am good. I am great. I am wonderful. And mantras are good. Don't get me wrong. But if you have a core underlying belief inside, I don't matter. If you've been preconditioned, if you had those messages pressed into the wet cement of your soul that you don't matter, such as the client we had on earlier today for an episode of the Badass Counseling Show podcast, she was basically in her home. She didn't exist. Her older sister was the problem child, uh, siphoned all of mom's and dad's attention. Where my client, who was, you know, as a kid, was just going through life with this notion that I'm not important. And in fact, the parents were blaming her. Hey, you were inconsolable as a child. You're the problem. You're the reason we've sort of distanced ourselves from you. Really? I was a fucking two-year-old kid. And so you're going to withdraw your love from me now at six, eight, and 14 because I cried a lot as a fucking baby? Fuck you, you fucking... Really? That's the extent of your quality parenting? Nice going, dumbass. No. So if a child is stepped back from or they're not getting their attention needs, their emotional needs, which is a huge part of what parenting is. It's not just putting a roof over your head and I provide for my child. Really, that's it? That's the extent of your parenting? What about their needs to feel love, for affection, for words of affirmation, for things like, you make good decisions, you'll be all right. Don't worry about it. Hey, pick yourself up. You're doing great. Or let those feelings out, kid. What about the emotional needs? Okay, so if your parent didn't do that, they convey the message, you don't matter, right? And so you're asking the question, oh, Sam, how do you feel like you do matter? You go inside and you identify, and this is why words are so important. This is why journaling and counseling and writing letters you don't send, or, or writing poetry, writing songs, whatever it takes to put your feelings into words and put your experiences, your truths into words. You go inside and you identify all the messages that you got in your life that conveyed the underlying belief that you don't matter. In other words, the way you feel like you do matter in life is by identifying all the things in life or inside of you that are counter messages to that. You identify all the experiences you had in life, particularly with the most powerful people in your life, specifically mom and dad. You identify all the messages that conveyed the under, or all of the events, all the circumstances, all of the words that were said that conveyed the underlying belief, I don't matter. And so in my book, I talk about this, and this is, I think, chapter nine, the three binary gates, and that, that chapter is so powerful in the book. But I also, there's a, there are subsequent chapters. I do about three different chapters on your life messages. Chapters 23, 24, and 25, and how those messages that you got about yourself and about life, but especially about yourself, those messages that you got as a child will undermine every single fucking decision that you make. I, someone, I, I was just addressing a question earlier. The person said, well, how do I deal with the fact that my father abandoning me has infected every single romantic relationship in my life? So she acknowledges that the abandonment of the father is correlated to my romantic relationships. It is correlated to causing problems in my romantic relationships. Well, that's a smart person. That's a smart cookie right there. Realizing, holy shit, that all of these experiences and not just the feelings I had regarding dad abandoning me, but the messages it was teaching me about myself, my own sense of worth, my own sense of mattering, my own sense of feeling wantable and wanted. All right, so how do you feel like you matter? You go in, you identify, and you begin to extricate. You begin to excise, to cut out by identifying, by giving words to all of the messages you have inside that convey the exact opposite message that you don't matter. Well, how do you do that? Well, as I've said, you get the freaking book. That's one way to do it. But you know what? If you don't want to read my book, don't read my fucking book. Go to Amazon and pull out my book, and, and Amazon gives you the option to uh, do this thing called look inside the book. 
right? We've all been on Amazon. And I put my recommended reading list, most recommended reading lists in any other author's book are at the end of the book. I put mine at the beginning of the book. Well, why the fuck would I do that? It defies convention. And even my publisher is like, why would you do that, Sven? I said, so that people can go to Amazon and do look inside the book and they can read the nine books that I recommend you read so that you never have to read my fucking book. Well, you can imagine what my publisher thought of that idea. I said, fuck it, I don't care. I want you to know, I'm not just here trying to sell books. I don't give a fuck. You wanna read my book? Read my book. You don't wanna read my book? Don't read my book. I don't give a shit. But I wanna give you the resources and I mean it so much and I'm gonna give you nine other resources that if you did those nine books, you're getting almost the exact same experience. I mean, you're getting much, much more in so many respects. But these are such great books that will help you in your life. You don't have to read my book. I don't give a shit if you read my book. Debbie Ford's book, The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Shakti Gawain's book, Living in the Light. Uh, the Sedona Method by Hale Dwoskin. Powerful books. But you gotta do the work of getting out those fucking messages that you were taught about yourself. Getting out the pain and the fears isn't enough. And what my book specifically dives into is the articulation of what those messages are. Because in the words of my 95-year-old mother, if she were still alive, today was her 95th birthday. I love you, mom. I even named my daughter after you. No, I don't call my daughter mom. Uh, I call her Charlotte. Anyway, as mom always said, Sven, naming the beast is half the problem. We have to give words. If you go to your doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, my gums are hurting. I got a rash on my ass and my ankles have been really kind of swollen and hurting. Uh, you know, and, and it's been bothering me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I finally decided to come, you know, because it's really stressing me the fuck out. And the doctor says, oh, that's no problem. That's such and such disease. Here's a pill. Give me 500 bucks. Now get the fuck out of my office. By giving a name to someone, we reduce that, the power that thing has over us. In the old days, this thing on this doctor theme. In the old days, we would call it Dr. Anderson and the doctor would call me Sven, right? There's a power imbalance. When you give someone a title or, you know, Reverend Johnson, we give someone a title where there's an implied power differential there, right? When we, but when we name, when we name that disease, oh, it's such and such disease. Here's a book, get the fuck out of my office. It has less power. Now it's not just this jumble of symptoms. Now we have a name for it and it's less powerful. By naming the shit that's going on inside of me, it has less power. By going back and looking at the truths, and this is the reason most people run from their shit in life. This is what it boils down to. Because the idea of looking at the truths and admitting the implications of what the fuck was done to me and how I was made to feel when I had zero power. When you are born, you have zero power. You have no power. The parent is omnipotent, all powerful for all intents and purposes in that child's life. And so the messages that that parent sends to that child imprint and run the fucking show forever. And very often we don't wanna look back not only and see those messages, but see how those messages were conveyed because it's too painful. Or admit, it means admitting mom, seeing mom for who she really was or seeing dad for who he really was or seeing my fucking asshole sibling for who that sibling was. Whatever it is, it's looking at the truth and it's so painful. Oh, I wanna protect mom. I don't wanna, no, I don't wanna hurt her feelings. You don't ever have to say anything to mom. You're so scared of the truth that you don't even want to admit it to me, a therapist, or admit it in the, in the security of your own pad and uh, pad of paper and pen while journaling in the morning, you know, next to the fire with your kitty cat. That's how scary this shit is. That's how powerful these thoughts, these memories are. These memories have these emotional charges attached to them, and they're so fucking extraordinarily powerful that we can't even think about it. Now, now think about what I just said. 
I have a little stopwatch here that we time the episodes of our show with. You can see me touching it. This is a physical thing. If I hit myself on the head with this stopwatch, Rob gets pissed because I'm breaking his stopwatch, but it can hurt. Ow, 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 right? But here's the funny fucking thing. For most people, the idea of hitting themselves on the head with a stopwatch is infinitely less painful than sitting alone with a thought, a memory of how my dad would always push me away or how my mom, I always had to walk on eggshells around mom. I didn't want to piss her off because she'd roar and she'd tear me down. A thought, you can't actually physically touch that memory of your mother. And yet it's so powerful. You can see, taste, touch, smell, the whole damn thing, can't you? You're afraid of a thought. A thought isn't even steam. It's not even a cloud. It's just a thought. And yet it has more powerful than if you were to take this stopwatch and bang yourself on the head with it. People are so terrified of those thoughts because those thoughts have extraordinarily powerful emotional charges attached to them. And it's the thought, it's the memory with those emotional charges that people will spend their entire fucking lives running from while that tidal wave of all their thoughts, memories, feelings, truths is pursuing them. They will overwork, overparent, swipe and scroll, game. They'll, they'll gamble, they'll booze, they'll cheat, they'll ha- have eating disorders, they'll all overwork, overparent, overexercise. They will engage in all manners of distraction. They'll surround themselves with chaos, more dogs, more animals, more uh, friends, more anything to keep myself away from having to sit still and that tidal wave of all the truths of my past, which is why in so many forms of rehab, they make you go sit in a chair or go sit on a park bench and you can't get up for two hours. <laughs> if you've been spending your life running from that fucking tidal wave and now I gotta sit still and I can't get up and I can't fucking snort something up my nose, I can't go talk to someone to distract myself, I can't jerk off to lots and lots of porn. No, Jesus, I gotta be alone with those fucking thoughts. You wanna overwhelm someone? You want to drive someone stir crazy or nuts? Start sitting in your fucking feelings. That's how powerful these memories are. You think that childhood shit doesn't matter? Really? Sit alone for two hours and don't distract yourself. Don't turn on the TV. Don't have food in your hand. Don't have a beer in your hand. Don't have a cup of coffee. Just sit alone. You can't fucking do it, can you? Because all that shit comes up. The vault of your past is so full with these memories, with these fucking emotional charges, you can't bear to sit still with it. Don't tell me you're not fucking running. Don't tell me that shit from childhood doesn't fucking matter. It's been chasing you your whole life and you are running as fast and as hard as you motherfucking can. And are you tired yet? Are you tired yet? At what point do you realize the misery, the sadness, the depression is because of all that running? It's because of that cave you fear to enter. But in the words of the immortal Joseph Campbell, the cave we most fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. The thing you've most been avoiding touching is the source of your motherfucking salvation. I'm gonna take one last question and then we are going to call it a day, a somewhat cloudy day in the New York City area, people. Oh, wait, I gotta take this as an aside before I take the last question. How do you stop from sitting in it? Because I'm exhausted. How do you stop? Well, shit, pick up the bottle. Go overwork. Go fucking do anything. Distract yourself from it. If your desire is to stop sitting in it, there are a million things you can do. Turn on the TV. Start going to watching, downloading more. All the fucking iterations of Yellowstone. Fucking watch Mad Men reruns. That's my favorite. But 
I mean, Christ, there are a million ways to stop sitting in it, but the mere fact that you're exhausted and it's not gone says that in all likelihood, you're avoiding the real shit. You're avoiding the real shit. And furthermore, are you getting it out? Are you actually, it, it biting at your heels as you're running, it biting at your heels? That's not the same as sitting it. Sitting it means flushing it out, finding the words for it, journaling, talking about it in session, going deeper, deeper, deeper to find those root causes. And if you really wanna attack it, get the book. There's a hole in my love cup. That's what I wrote this fucking book for, to help you go down deep. Because I am very much a believer that healing can be immediate. Healing can be immediate if you go deep enough. It's about the depth. It's not just talking about the daily shit or, or you know, overworking the memories. You got to go into what the meanings were, what the experiences were, and what the implications are. All right. Now, now, you guys, I am going to take my last question. Hey, why not? Let's take this one. This is something I know nothing about. Uh, that I'm going to comment on just because, ah, fuck it. Do you feel an open relationship between three people can work? <laughs> Rob, what do you like about that? What are you giggling about? I, I like everything about that question. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. I love that question. That's that's fun. It's a light question to end that I'm, although very serious for you, I don't mean to diminish the implications uh, of that for you in your life. Well, I know nothing about polyamory. I have had clients and I've, I've worked with many clients over the years who are involved in some form of polyamory. Um, so I know it only, you know, secondhand. And I've, I've actually worked with several to help them have successful relationships. But it's like anything, really. In a way, on one hand, on one hand, it's no different from a um, two-people relationship. Why? Because what's really required for a two-people relationship to work? Love, significant communication, honesty, trust, respect. Well, Christ, if you don't have those, your three-person relationship isn't going to work, or at least not work for long. Is everyone open to begin with? Are you talking about your problems? I mean, there are so many people, it's like, fuck, three people? Jeez, I can't even make it in a relationship with two people because... Hey, you know, maybe it's because you don't talk about your problems or someone's withholding their feelings. Oh, I don't matter. See, what's going to corrupt a three-person relationship is the same shit that's going to, yes, are there other wrinkles that are unique to a three-person relationship? Of course, I'm not disputing that. Okay, however, at the root, as, at least as I've experienced it in the people that I've counseled over the years who are engaged in polyamorous relationship, at the root, it's always the same shit. It's always that fucking childhood shit right? That my own insecurities, my own core beliefs that I was taught about myself, I'm no good, I'm not wanted, I'm unwantable, the real me doesn't matter, that's the shit that is going to infect any relationship. You go in with two, you go in with six. Whatever, the point is, you live on a fucking commune. I got some friends trying to talk my girlfriend and me into living in a commune. Good luck with that. Exactly. Thank you. I don't want to work that hard. Jesus, I can barely wipe my own ass. You know, now I got to help other people, you know, plant their gardens and, you know, fucking take care of their chickens or what have you. I'm sorry. A uh, little punchy. We've we've done this is our third show today. Rob? Feels like five, <laughs> six. I'm not sure. <laughs> Leave that in, by the way. It's it's a light moment behind the scenes. Okay. Okay. Um, so do you feel an open relationship between three people can work? Yes. The thing that is going to undermine it more than anything is the bullshit from your fucking childhood that is still your childhood, the person number two childhood and person number three, because those are the things that are going to cause you to not share your feelings. Those are the, those are the core beliefs you're taught about yourself that are causing you to not share what you really feel or to not talk out your problems, to not say, I'm sorry, to not forgive. 
to withhold, to be selfish rather than a trustworthy person or cause one of the other people to be a non-trustworthy person. But it's still the core shit in any relationship. It's trust, it's respect, it's kindness, it's talking about the problems, it's owning the pain that I've caused and others owning theirs. So on behalf of all the people asking all of these wonderful questions, on behalf of all the listeners around the world, it's kind of funny, I, I, I just have to comment, on behalf of my girlfriend who literally just tried to call me on one of the phones that we're taping on, it's like, come home now, honey, it's dinner time. <laughs> um, on behalf of everyone, on behalf of KC in the booth and Rob, this big guy next to me who does all the really hard work, I just play and then he does the real work. Rob, what do you think of today's show? It's my privilege to do that work, Sven. These are big times in the entertainment industry. We got... Ted Lasso's back and Succession's back and Yellow Jackets and the Badass Counseling Show. It's all back and you are stuck with me, people, but I wanna thank you all for tuning in. It's been great and thank you for your questions. For those of you who have put your questions out there and had the courage to sort of put your stuff out there in public, I thank you for that. Hearing how other people are struggling through life, it helps us to reflect on our own lives, to see life differently, how someone else might be addressing something or something even as that wouldn't relate to me. You might think, well, I'd never be in a three-person relationship. But you know what? When you talk about that way, Sven, that, that, you know, it's the same issues of communicating and owning your shit and stuff like that. It's like, wow, I'm just in a two-person relationship. And I realize, yeah, we need more of that in our relationship. We learn by listening to others and watching others in life. And so I want to thank every one of you that's had the courage to put your truths out there and put your problems out there for the rest of us to sort of chew on and pull the meat off the bone, so to speak. So thank you so much to all of the listeners that we have in Butte, Montana, and the listeners in Arkansas and in Honduras. We actually have some from there quite regularly. And friends in the UK, South Africa, Japan, and around the world, thank you for tuning in to another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of Rob and KC, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.